Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Concur. Employees get simplified expense reports and business leaders get full visibility into their company's spending habits. Expense, travel, invoice. Learn more at concur.com GABFEST. And by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com political. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 26th, 2016, the Is Trump's Nomination Inevitable edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, John Dickerson of Face the Nation and the Whistle Stop podcast, and so many other things, joins me in this this uh, new Slate studio, which is my, I'm, I'm uh, having my debut voyage in my, cab, my cabin. I have an ocean view here. It's nice, right? It's nice. It's it's like a hundred times better, as yeah. you said, than the right. last one. So yeah. this is great. And and now Elle is taking a picture of us through the producer glass. Okay, guys, you talked about the new studio last week already. This is boring. That's Emily, Bazelon, That's Emily Bazelon. Resentful Emily Bazelon, not in a new studio. Hello, Emily Bazelon exactly. of the New York Times Magazine. How are you? you I'm good. How are you? Wow, she's coming in with a certain clarity that I know it's exciting it's real weird it's the whole thing I don't even know what's gonna happen yeah I mean ever since we put down the progresso soup cans we used to do this thing on we've uh we're just kind of getting used to it on this week's gab fest super Tuesday is next week and there is growing fear and in some quarters of the country glee that Donald Trump could be close to locking up the nomination for the Republican Party John will parse the numbers for us tell us if that is so then uh the Supreme Court We'll talk about a police search and seizure case that landed there and what the, that court will do. Scalia-less, that's a word. Uh, but more importantly, we'll talk about what is looking like it might happen with the nomination of the next justice to replace Scalia. 
Then it is Apple versus FBI Part 2, The Unlocking. This time it's personal. Are they we, not unlocking? We will reprise our scalding fight from last week, possibly. We'll see what happens. But we will talk about what the new the new developments in that very interesting case. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, President Obama's latest doom plan to close Guantanamo Bay prison. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Okay, let's talk about what's going on in the fascinating Republican race. Donald Trump won the Nevada caucuses in a walk this week, taking as many votes as Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio combined. John Kasich and Ben Carson limped in in a week fourth and fifth. Trump's victory and the prospect that he could win a bunch of states, eight or more states, in Super Tuesday next week, including perhaps Ted Cruz's Texas, have some of the numbers mavens delegate counting saying that that his nomination might be inevitable. So, John, give us a give us the thirty five thousand foot view of the numbers on this. Here, here's John uh, turns to notebook. No, I'll, not. I'll give you two. Two. So the the Trump is unstoppable scenario goes like this: there are eleven Super Tuesday states. He wins ten of them, even if he loses Texas. If he's close to Cruz, it just creates a sense. It it, it builds on this sense of inevitability. The biggest the biggest question with Trump is how do you stop him? In South Carolina, the electorate there set up nicely for Cruz, more conservative, more evangelical. If there was a state where Cruz was going to take him on, South Carolina would have been it. Why does that matter? Because the Super Tuesday states, Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Tennessee, Oklahoma, are kind of like South Carolina. So if he couldn't do it in South Carolina, it's unlikely he'll do it there. So that means the threat from Cruz looks highly diminished in terms of knocking him back on Super Tuesday. Marco Rubio's theory is that he'll live through Super Tuesday and be able to really take out Trump with the winner-take-all contests on the 15th in Ohio and Florida. It's a long way to wait. If Trump does well on the 1st, this sense of kind of rolling momentum will uh, will continue. Now, there's been this talk all along that Trump had a ceiling. I've said it many times myself. The problem is that ceiling may not exist. Uh, the ceiling may not exist, and there may be something like a bandwagon effect, which is we saw one poll in Massachusetts where Trump has 50 percent of the vote. So all the things that people found objectionable about Trump in the first place have been removed as he continues to win. And so some people say, oh, well, maybe I'll go with the winner. And then he has no ceiling in the Republican primary race. This He obviously has a, a ceiling in the general election. That, that's kind of where things stand. I think I've touched most of the major bases. Did, did, is there any model whereby Cruz actually drops out after Super Tuesday? I think you could imagine two scenarios. One, he drops out after Super Tuesday and says, I'm going to focus all my um, fire on Donald Trump. And these are fantasies, by the way. This is not reported. There's no evidence he's dropping out. I think let's go with the more plausible thing. The more plausible thing is he stays in. He's a warrior for conservatism. There are a lot of true conservatives who believe that Ted Cruz is the man. And and you could imagine him going all the way to the convention with a certain number of delegates, hoping for chaos at the convention, at which play, you know, at time he could play a role. That's one scenario. He, he would not diminish his stature in the conservative movement if he remained a warrior for the cause all the way through against Donald Trump. So he doesn't lose any personal stature. In fact, you can imagine he gains personal stature. There's a there's a model for this in the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan in 75 running against, 75 and 76 running against Ford, where he becomes a hero, even though he's trying to take the main guy down. The other alternative is he drops out, says, I'm going to help Marco Rubio defeat Donald Trump. Rubio gets in, becomes president, then, you know, he owes Cruz 
If he doesn't, Cruz sets himself up for 2020 as a guy who did the magnanimous thing for the party. That second scenario is totally made up. There's not a single person I've talked to who's floated that. So don't don't think that that's b- reported. Okay, that's just a, like character. that's fan fiction. So um, anyway, you're a Cruz Rubio shipper. I think you're a fan. Um, Emily, why has the shine worn off of Ted Cruz in these past? few weeks is it simply that he did not do well as well in south carolina as he hoped or is that is it that there's this the the feeling that he's a bit of a cheat and a bully and and uh and running a dirty campaign didn't you just give two good answers so his challenge all along has been to show that he can go beyond his core evangelical support he didn't do that even in south carolina and then there are these dirty tricks, and he had to fire his own campaign guy for circulating, tweeting, I guess, out a video of Rubio supposedly saying there were no answers in the Bible when he actually said there are many answers or it has all the answers. I mean, that yeah, is for just, which, like, also for which I have to say, like Marco, the the incorrect or the, whatever the, the 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 supposed smear answer is actually more correct in my view than all the answers yes, are in well, the Bible. But whatever. <laughs> and you wrote a book about the Bible, so you should know. But in in their circles, surely the the correct answer was the one Rubio actually gave. Is there any mechanism whereby Trump gets the required number of delegates, John, but somehow is not the nominee? Is there any way that the the party can do that? I'm not sure that they would. I mean, yeah. presumably, if he got those delegates, he would be the choice of a lot of the people in the party. But. Right. I don't think so because you have. The delegates are bound on the first ballot. I believe this is true in all of the states. And so if he has enough delegates and they're bound, then the vote, then he wins. Now, if you get there and you don't have the correct number of delegates, then um, in various different states, I believe it's the case that you then become unbound on different ballots. So you're bound for the first, but you're not bound for the second or third. But wait, um, that's if you come in. That's if you under come in under, right? Exactly, account. exactly. That's okay. if you come in under the requisite account. Um, the so what we're plotting here, I think, is or what David's seeking is what are the, in order of ranking of plausibility or effectiveness, what are the possible stop Trump moves? I think there are those that are pre-convention. Well, obviously, one is to beat him in the contests. Second is to <laughs> there to is do something still that at, the, possibility. at the convention, and then I think the third would be. Could somebody floated this to me yesterday who is um, not a fan of Donald Trump's would could you run somebody in uh, battleground states who would basically just I mean, this is the this is the chaos theory who would basically take votes away from Trump and hand the election to Hillary Clinton. That it would be better to have Hillary Clinton than to have Donald Trump. But as it's the hard president. to get people on the, the ballot. The Republicans at this point. couldn't do that overtly. You can, could they? You'd have to do it on the Constitution Party ballot or something like that. Yeah, you'd have to. Right, you'd run as an independent, and you'd have to gain. So you'd have to collect signatures. I mean, you'd have to. You'd have to like you, and that's that process starts March first. Well, as far as yeah, I mean, I was talking to to people who who are thinking about the Bloomberg one, and Bloomberg feels he has to decide by March first. Yeah, that's why I've always said because, like Whaley starts actually getting signatures to get on the ballot, then we'll know, you know, whether it's, we should take him seriously. It, so we have this bizarre spectacle, Emily, where you have Donald Trump, who is not a Republican by any of the normal metrics used by the party establishment over the past several years. He is a protectionist, nativist. I mean, that nativist part, I guess, is more increasingly Republican, pro-protecting entitlements. He has a mercantilist, not a free market policy. He is not uh, anti-government in any real sense. He is against a lot of yeah. He's an isolationist. Kind of. He's against a lot of the the neocon 
expansionary foreign policy. And then you have a donor class of the Republican Party, which is free markets, immigration, invade countries in the Middle East, lower taxes. And and tr- tr- these two things are not high. There are not a lot of points of overlap. Can this be a coherent party Do, with Trump at the head of it? So if they decide to make their peace with him, they have to come together around lowering taxes, right? Because that's important to both sides. And that could be a really great place to meet. And then they can have some symbolic or I guess real effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act or replace it with something else that has an individual mandate. I mean, it, that part is starts to be incoherent again, although at least rhetorically, Trump usually says that he's on board to repeal Obamacare. Yeah, I think he's I think he's run away from individual mandate. And I mean, I think he's gotten to the right place now, even though he was a little confused last week about where exactly he stood in terms of what <laughs> would stay as a part of Obamacare. But I think he's now he's on board with the full repeal and destruction of it. I mean, right. he, so those are two important and immigration. I guess immigration too. Which, well, not exactly. Yeah, I mean, kind that's of. A, that's Paul the Ryan's problem. Not on board for his immigration agenda. Right. Exactly. And also, yeah. Um, and also, once you get so repealing Obamacare, that's one thing. Once you quickly get into the details, you get run into problems with Trump and and Ryan. Do you think, though, John, it, it, supposing that Trump indeed continues and 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 secures the nomination, who's going to move toward whom? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Trump uh, doesn't seem to like. Sorry to interrupt my interrupt you, but Trump doesn't. Trump is a is an amazing rhetorician, but he actually doesn't seem to have actual policy views. It's like sort of whatever he thinks well, at that moment. I think that's true. The about wall s- seems hard. Uh, hard well, to he right. he's stuck with that because that's that he landed on that, and it's been it's been useful. Right. I think so. I. Uh, he does have views. Uh, they are malleable for sure. I mean, we've seen that a lot, both in how much he's changed from when he said he was a Democrat to what he's the Republican he says he is now. And then we've seen it in, re- in real time. I mean, we've seen even his position on immigration has shifted from its kind of hardcore part to he is actually, I mean, it depends where you want to put the needle down. But on the one hand, he's more to the right than Cruz. He wants to round everybody up. But on the other hand, he's got this touchback, what uh, this touchback provision, which is basically if you're one of what he calls the good ones, uh, you have to go back to uh, your country of origin, touch ground there, and then you can come back in. When members of Republicans brought it up in Congress as a part of immigration reform, the conservatives said that's basically amnesty. And so that is to the left of where Ted Cruz is. So I guess the point is, I think they both kind of move towards uh, each other if we get to that point. But I think that I, I, I think we've got one more round of I mean, the challenge with Trump is both to actual ideological conservatives and the business kind of mainstream Republicans. So he's got two sets of the parts of the Republican Party that that think he would be a disaster. And those two ha- could come together in an effort to try and um, block him somehow, because I mean, there are p- people who believe in the conservative movement that w- think about what the Republican Party has been able to do in the states, in the House. They have the majority in the Senate now, and then if Trump becomes the nominee, that he essentially destroys all of those gains. That the Senate John, then becomes. Is well, Marco Rubio going to start going after Donald Trump? This is what I want to know. Yeah, I find his ducking and fainting to be baffling at this well, point. Well, I think you can do one of two things. First, it, if you look at the way in which foreign policy is discussed in this in this campaign, 
those leaders who do not take immediate, bold, fast action to confront threats are considered to be weak and unworthy of the American name. So in that regard, Indeed. in that regard, Marco Rubio, by the by the metric used to measure foreign policy success, has been a disaster. As a strategic move, though, you can see what's true in foreign policy is true in campaigns. Sometimes waiting and sometimes restraint is the smartest thing you can do. So that argument goes this way, which is, okay, let it get down to a two-man race. And when it does, there will be a debate or there will be a moment in a venue. Don't have the venue be every tweet and every cable show. That'll kill you because Trump is really good at those fights. Yes. Just keep the debate in the debates, which are visually more presidential. And this is half reporting, half riffing, by the way, just so. Um, um, <laughs> Glad to have that. Well, clear. I mean, Everyone I don't want. should have to give their percentages <sighs> with Mage. Unlike um, the earlier okay. fantasies, yeah. which were just bed, <laughs> bedchamber. So, but imagine you're on a debate stage. The venue itself raises the, or is supposed to, <laughs> raise the dialogue and raise, and everybody looks at the two people up there as though they might be president. And in that venue, Marco Rubio could then take him on and it would have more, it would be closer to turf that he has uh, talent on than the turf, the day-to-day, hour-to-hour, tweet-by-tweet, where Donald Trump has a lot more turf, if you're deciding when and where do I take him on. But that, John, when, taping- when, yeah, I mean, this is March 1st, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to happen before that well, moment could possibly take we're, place. And we're, we're taping ta- on Thursday before the debate, so we don't know whether Rubio is going to become more aggressive tonight. Right. There's also a debate on the 10th of March, which takes place in Florida, obviously five days before the vote in Florida, in Florida. Well, that'll be coming Rubio's, down to the wire. That'll be, a, that'll be an interesting one to watch. So there are two opportunities here. Can I just go back and make a point um, about Trump and policy? Is that that when people talk about Trump as being like Goldwater— and possibly you know, that far outside the mainstream of where the parties are. I actually think that Trump is, in some sense, he's more dangerous as a politician because he is such a bully and a demagogue and an authoritarian. But ideologically, I don't think he's that as dangerous as Goldwater because it isn't actually a coherent set of ideas that he is matched to, that he is willing to carry forward ideologically. It's, it's, I, I are think- you guys drawn in all of the Governor Schwarzenegger comparison? That's been comforting me lately. Various commentators have been pointing out that Schwarzenegger said all... I mean, he was a Trump-like candidate the first time he ran for governor, and he came into office, and he seemed like a fascist, and then he calmed down, although it may have taken, like, all the way until his second term for that to happen. But he basically became a moderate and someone who was pro-business, but in a way where you work with the Democrats. And obviously, California is a more liberal place in the country, so maybe it's not apt at all, but I was clinging to that a little bit. This goes back to David's original question is, is Trump totally transactional? Does he have a set of core beliefs or will they change? And if they change, you would imagine him changing quite a lot in the general election because of the way the polling looks. Um, And then when he gets to Washington, because he believes or because he wants to win and just have points on the scoreboard, he would do whatever was required to do that, even if it broke whatever ideological rules. I mean, there are structural impediments to just doing whatever you want. Right. In a democracy, those still do, they, those still do hold. Uh, in, in, um, but, I, but just quickly to your point, David, I think you're exactly right about Goldwater was, the, was an ideological movement based on a certain set of ideas. Trump is much more of a, a freewheeling set of ideas that get authored as the, as the plane's flying. God help us. Okay, now let's hear a word from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. 
You have to interrupt your day to drive to the post office, find parking, stand waiting in line for who knows how long while those people in front of you try to send those weird-shaped packages. That's now a thing of the past, thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. You can even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Supreme Court reconvened this week. It sat without Justice Scalia, who, of course, died last week. Eight justices immediately confronted a contentious case that may end up with a different outcome because there is no Justice Scalia ruling on it called Utah versus Edward Streif or Strife. It's a search and seizure case. We're going to talk about the case, but really we want to talk about the court dynamics. So, Emily, let's start. I just had a question, which is, did the court do anything ritually to commemorate Justice Scalia in the hearing itself, in the in the argument, or was that not done in the courtroom? Yes. They started off, Chief Justice John Roberts started off by talking about Scalia, and um, there was a certainly a recognition that he was not there among them. And the justices have also done that in their individual appearances in the last couple of weeks. And so t- talk a little bit about the Streep case and why it is important and why Scalia's absence is important to it. In this case, the police department in Salt Lake City got a call that there was maybe some drug activity going on at a house. And so they started watching the house, and there were an unusual number of people coming in and out. And they stopped this one guy who was coming out. His name was Edward Streif. So let's stop right there. That was an illegal stop. It's an illegal seizure of his person in Fourth Amendment terms because having some suspicion of one house and people coming in and out isn't enough to seize the person of one of those people. So everybody agrees. Can I about can I pa- can I call the time there? Because I how is it if that is illegal? How is the entire stop and frisk policy legal? Right. Well, one of the questions with stop and frisk was why were the cops stopping people? Did they have good enough reasons? And they had to give reasons that were individualized uh, about the suspicious activity of a person, not just like they were coming down a dark street or out of a house that a lot of other people came out of. And then sometimes they gave justifications that were challenged in court for being unpersuasive. Okay, good. All right. Sorry, but that's not this case. On with um, Salt Lake City, and let's call him Edward Streif, though I also have no idea how to pronounce his name. So he gets stopped. He gets unconstitutionally seized. He's standing there. The cops run a warrant check on him. The warrant comes up positive. There's an outstanding warrant for his arrest. He had minor traffic violations. And at that point, they searched him, and they found methamphetamine on him. And he was convicted at trial for having drugs. So the Utah Supreme Court gets this case, and it's actually a really interesting question about the extent of what's called the exclusionary rule. This is the idea that if the police do something that violates your Fourth Amendment rights against search and seizure, then how far do those rights extend? So there was a very striking and unusual moment at oral argument where Roberts and Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito were trying to make the point that, you know, really most places in the country, the rate of warrant arrests is um, so low that the police wouldn't 
go on fishing expeditions just willy-nilly stopping people like, oh, maybe you have a warrant out for your arrest. Um, of course, in places like Ferguson, the rate is quite high. Anyway, Justice Alito said, well, you know, we really don't have to worry about judges just issuing outstanding bench warrants for people to make it easier to stop them. And Sotomayor said that she was very surprised that Justice Alito didn't know that these bench warrants are issued automatically when people don't pay fines. She was really calling him out. And I know that, like, it's all in this cloaked legalese. Maybe it doesn't sound super dramatic. It's like only in the world of the Supreme Court would that essentially um, deserve a kind of gasp. But she was saying to him, you don't know anything about what it's like to feel victimized and at the mercy of the justice system. And you need to think about it a little bit and, you know, have your worldview expand to include places like Ferguson. Does the um, American legal system care about search and seizure so much because it's written in the Fourth Amendment? I mean, in other words, in Canada and places like that, is it not as enshrined in the founding document? Yes, that is absolutely true. It's also true, though, that it's clear that the framers and even like, you know, until the 20th century, that what people thought was the remedy for an illegal search and seizure was a civil lawsuit against the police and not that you automatically throw out all the evidence. That's the creature, the creation of the Warren Court. Um, And there's this whole, now that you've given me my opening, this whole interesting debate about whether American procedural protections are strong at the mercy of really trying to make sure innocent people don't go to prison. So this question of like, do we prevent the police from violating the rights of guilty people versus having stronger um, ways to revisit bad decisions that cause wrongful convictions? And there's a, I'm now relying on a late Harvard law professor named William Stuntz who wrote a lot about this in a really interesting way. I do think, I mean, I don't, I- the fact that Canada or, or a lot of Europe doesn't have the exclusionary rule is, is interesting. I didn't realize that. I feel that the, the there's this form of policing that happens in the U.S. and particularly in cities and particularly in poor communities where there's just a ton of police activity which sieves up lots of people all at once um, or lots of people one by one all the time that, that makes the exclusionary rule pretty valuable because so many people are so caught up in the justice system so often that you do want to – you do want to have a kind of inbuilt constraint on police activity and not rely on judges having to deal with this after the fact. Right, um, especially because judges don't judge in so many state court proceedings. They merely process people in a way that doesn't protect anybody's rights. So, yes, I think there's a strong argument for what you're saying. All right. Meanwhile, back on Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said and was backed up by John Cornyn, who I guess is the Senate Majority Whip. They would refuse to even meet with a nominee that President Obama put forward for the Supreme Court. They said putting forward a nominee would be divisive, doomed, pointless, expose the country to this pointlessness, and that the next president should, of course, decide it. There seems to be growing consensus, at least publicly, at least this is the the pose that Republicans are taking, that we will not have any hearings, we will not have any votes, no matter who it is. John, as politics, do you think the no hearings, no vote, is that a wise move or is that a damaging move or is it just a, is it just a posture and then they'll then they'll allow the hearings it's a depressing move you know so the republicans were happy this week when they found joe biden arguing when he was a senator arguing essentially for what is now the republican position so it's de- maybe sort, sort of. of let's sort just of. like footnote that he said so, other things in that speech sure. that suggested if right like a moderate nominee would be treated differently etc yeah but i mean 
he wasn't. But he did at one point say this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He wasn't saying what you'd want them <laughs> to say. He said a lot of things. Yeah. 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 As he often is does. Long-winded man. Right. You would want. I mean, let's stipulate at the at the outset that whether Democrat or Republican, you'd want them to do their job. And their job, the job of the president is to nominate somebody. And the job of the Senate is to knock that person down or or uh, approve of them or whatever. But do their do the job. Do so, something. Do something, right? And so not, they're not they're choosing to do nothing. How do the politics work out? Um, well, they do. Republicans do have these instances in which Democrats said a version of what they're saying. They have cover in that way. But the question is saying something is different than doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It, the, the, who really? knows where the country is? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm talking about the politics. Oh, it's not the. Okay. I'm not saying that. I'm not. No, I think there is a. I think there there is a difference. The Republicans are are not allowing this to happen. What's going to happen when? The, so the president will name somebody, and then he will start having visits with that person. And what will happen? Will Will Republicans just refuse to meet with that nominee? If they do meet with them, then the the next round is well, you met with them. Why don't you give them a hearing? Then if they give him a hearing, they could have a hearing and not have a vote. That's been done. It happened to Justice Kagan when she was nominated to the D.C. Circuit. There's a little piece right. of trivia. So anyway, the, the question then, though, is is on the Democratic side, is that uh, would the president want to nominate somebody who has to go through this circus? You know, they'll become the punching bag in this left-right uh, firestorm. Oh, God, that was a horrible mixed metaphor. <laughs> the firestorm. That punching bag is totally uh, in flames sorry. now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now let's hear a word from our next sponsor this week, which is Concur. As a business leader, I know that employee satisfaction is just as important as the bottom line. And that's why there's Concur. Only Concur offers simple and intuitive expense reporting tools that benefit both your employees and your business. With Concur, employees can create expense reports that practically write themselves. All they have to do is take a photo of their receipt, and Concur creates and categorizes the expense entry. As an employer, you get accurate, consolidated spending data instantly, giving you the visibility and the insight to drive cost savings. Happier employees, more productivity, and the data you need, all leading to a healthier bottom line. Expense, travel, invoice. Learn more at concur.com slash gabfest. We had such a good discussion about Apple versus the FBI last week. We are going to have another one because there's been more action this week. It's going to have to be a little bit quick because we just realized Emily's getting booted out of the the uh, studio by jackbooted thugs. No, not by jackbooted <laughs> the thugs. FBI is the FBI is, is coming. taking her out. Not at all. Apple's coming. So this week, um, Zuckerberg and Google sort of came down on Apple's side. And the New York Police Department boss, uh, Bill Bratton, said, hey, if, if, uh, if the FBI can force Apple to do this. We're going to want to force them to do this on a lot of phones that we've got, too. The FBI also conceded, or somehow, I don't know how this came out, that there were at least 10 other phones, maybe 11 other phones that they want access to that they're asking Apple to to crack open for them. So it is now in no sense a one-off, as some people thought last week. So did anything you heard this uh, during the course of the week, Emily, change your mind and make you think that you, God, I was so wrong no, um, and- I was relieved, actually, because I initially figured I must be wrong since everyone in the, in, on the Internet is on your side. Here's well, Of course there are more phones the government wants to break into because what is at stake here is whether the government is going to be able to 
solve crimes by using the information on phones that are protected by passwords. And maybe we want to move to a world in which we truly have secure information on our iPhones and that's it. I don't actually think that Congress in the end would um, let us live in that world because it's not the world that we have lived in. We have had phone companies that have had the obligation to work with the government when the government gets a search warrant or a court order. And so it is this we're talking about a big shift here. And maybe it's worth it because the government screwed up with um, the National Security Agency and all its data mining and raking in of information. Maybe we want to move to that universe, but it is a different universe and it will be a big problem for the cops and the FBI if we decide to live there. Well, but First of all, there was a long period of time when phones were not tapped, when there was there were phone communications that existed which were not tapped, and the government yes, didn't. Yes, that is true. If you go back, so, right, you're we're so, going back. So it's to not. Like, so we certainly lived in a period. There's been a period in our memory, practically not in our memory, but in our parents' memory, when phone communications were the government couldn't touch them and there was no access to them. And so it's I not, think you're probably not, right. Pre 1970s, you're so, probably right about that. Yeah. So don't make it seem like inevitably the government has always had the right and the ability to tap into every communication that people are making, even electronic. And certainly, like, you know, there are lots of kinds of things that the government is unable to get access to, that communications the government can't get or, or you know, the, the, the conversations that you have with, with people yes. randomly. I think that's uh, exactly the right analogy. Is the information on your phone like the spoken word, something that just go ephemeral? It goes out into the air and nobody imagines the government. We would find it super creepy if the government was capturing all of it. And I certainly think like that the government has an absolute right to try to get this data and to, to take the physical object that make, has the data and do whatever they want. I think where you get into trouble is where you say, I'm going to compel a private company, which is not a party, to any of this, it has. It is not. Apple is is not a party. They are not. They did not. They are not suspects in in this case. They didn't. Are not bringing the case. They're not civilly part of this case. To compel them to do labor that they don't want to do in order to abet your your investigation. Why? The FBI should Why go, is that such a big deal? Why? Because then is you it can't, also terrible to have it, a statute requiring phone companies to set up the way they place calls in a way that they can be traceable? If, if Congress wants to write a statute that that says any software company is compelled to cooperate in this fashion, I welcome them to do it, and I welcome them to, to have the public debate over it. I, what I don't like is taking a, a 226-year-old law, which was written not at all for this, and applying it to technology it's ne- in a way it's never been applied before, and demanding that a company do something. It, it's never been applied in a way which said companies have to actively go out and create some new piece of work for you, the government. See, and, I find that, that to be not an, an, I'm not moved by that argument, but I am oh moved my by the God. idea of the courts like, versus Congress. Because we've been using the All Writs Act for all kinds of ways. And we, this has been part of how law enforcement has worked. So the idea that like all of a sudden we all woke up to the notion that like, oh, gee, a technology company was being asked to help. If Apple's the gover- been helping if it's forever. So, if it's if it is so important to the government that they, they get this phone, then hire hackers. Put up a, a friend of mine suggested, why don't they put up a $5 million prize for whoever can come up with a way to hack this phone? So, but here's a question about the technology. Is it the is it the fact that you want Apple to actively engage in uh, coming up with the software? Or what if only only all Apple had to do is provide, since this is part of the trick, provide the signature that allows the new iOS that allows these blunt attacks to go forward. So the FBI creates the technology that would actually 
figure out what the password is. But they do need the one thing they I, need from Apple the, is they the, need the signature the, that allows I think, it to work. So I, would what if all would be Apple much needed bigger deal to hand over well, the I signature? Think the well, FBI they're gonna they're gonna have to do that regardless. I think the FBI can subpoena they could subpoena Apple and say and demand like make a case in a courtroom. We need all of your blueprints. We need all of the underlying code here so that we can. But if they want to do that, I just think what they they are just saying. Oh, it's easier for us to go tell Apple to do something than to do it ourselves because but, they are not weighing the cost that this imposes no, but on we, no, other can people. Also, can we just focus the question just quickly for a moment? No. Which is since no. you're saying that compelling a company to create something that essentially breaks its own device, is it the amount of work that the company has to do that is the barrier, or because if if all Apple had to do was provide this signature, which is, I mean, there there are at least two things that have to be done. One, you have to create the iOS that allows you to get past mm-hmm. this limit of 10 passwords. And then the other is you have to gain access to the phone to be able to use that piece of software that you would create. And that is something that only Apple has. So if Apple only has to do that last marginal thing, is that less of an offense than creating, than saying, get all your scientists in the room to create yes, the fake Yes, I think iOS? that is, I do think that is less of an offense. Yeah. Although I'm not, it's not clear to me it's not. Cl- I, I haven't thought about that. Right. But yeah, I, I think I certainly think it's less of an offense to be forced to provide a single number than it is to compel you to do work. Let me ask you this then: the other question, because we've talked about this in terms of what an, what obligation we owe the country that builds our roads and takes care of our um, airports so that our planes don't crash, and all of the thing that was surrounding the "you didn't build that" debate. What role does a company have as a corporate citizen in a country where you're allowed to operate and all that? What do they? Yeah. I want to. I want to. Oh, absolutely. The Apple has an obligation, and 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 I think everyone is right to say there's a little bit of a, we're dressing ourselves in the mass in the in a kind of cape of of civic uh, obligation and civic goodness and patriotism that Apple is putting on when in fact it's self interested. But I think Apple is protecting a certain set of core American values too. Right. And it it what it is saying is this is a judge you know who's been asked by a, a prosecutor to do something. Right. This is not the United States Congress passing legislation at the will of the people. This is this is something that is no the judge. These are duly authorized. Yeah, and you know why? Because Apple asked to not have Congress step in, and and the Obama administration has been trying to work this out with them. That is fine. That's call by all means call Apple out for the hypocrisy about this. You know, if this is so important, then get the public. To yeah, pass I legislation, think that's a totally and 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 you know what, Emily? Like and when we pa- when they pass that legislation, like, when they pass that legislation, people like you are going to sit there and be like, "Oh, this is like the Patriot Act," because you're going to realize that this no, the, not if they craft it carefully and thoughtfully. The kind of crap legislation <laughs> that Congress passes around this shit is is always going to be invasive, well, excessive, and, and when you throw and things to Congress, dem- you're stuck with what they come yeah. up with. Well, let me let me ask that question then, and use an expression I hate when people use, but let's think about it in terms of. Of game theory. So you are holding your view, David. Do you really want to hand this over to Congress, given where the polls are right now, which is that the country is right now not in Apple's corner? And so if members of Congress are pushed and moved by public opinion, let's just assume that blunt correlation, mm-hmm. then the law will be far worse yeah. than if it were to take place in a court of law where presumably the arguments that you make might have more standing. Well, right. I'm, you want I'm, ma- you might want Judge Made. I don't know. I haven't sure. That's what, you what I. Yeah, law. you might I'm, want the judge more. I'm than totally the disillusioned by all of the branches, but actually, in this <laughs> regard, I think I think the 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 misbehavior of the judicial and the investigatory branches of the government have been so profound in the past 15 years that. 
that I want it out of their hands because I think they huh. they I feel seize like you're coloring everyone with shouldn't. the NSA in a way that's a little bit like too oh and the FISA court well now and, and, and the CIA but, and the FBI and and what are those letters but, the national security letters, letters. You, all of that can't you blame everything all the post 9-11 mess can't you blame Congress for setting up the weak FISA system in the first place yeah. yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right look we got we got to leave it there okay and now we're going to hear from another sponsor of the GabFest, Texture. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You can breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. You don't just get to read National Geographic and The New Yorker. The Texture editorial team recommends content for you every day. Plus, you can dive deeper with personalized collections. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. And the best part, Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com political. You'll gain immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash political. That's texture.com slash political. Okay, now on to cocktail chatter. We don't have Emily, so I'm going to do an extra cocktail chatter. How about that? Yeah, was, yeah. No, all right, I'll do my first chatter because I had two, is that I saw um, this. someone has put up a memorial in Chicago to the place where President Obama and um, Michelle Obama had their first kiss. There's like this cute little rock and then a memorial plaque they had a date and it was outside of dunkin donuts in chicago and now they put up a on the obama kissing rock i just think that's great so cute john what's your chatter <laughs> what? cute. so i was doing some uh research into the 1976 race between gerald ford and ronald reagan and came across something that i didn't put in the whistle stop about the two whistle stops i did about that race that just amused me because when we think about the um, small little things that whipsaw our presidential contests and how meaningless they are, you uh, can find uh, sustenance in the fact that it's always been this way. In November of 1975, Ford was doing an interview with a, a, a columnist, and the columnist asked him where he was going to go skiing. And he said, well, you might go to New Hampshire because, you know, there's an important um, uh, primary there and you're, you're down to Reagan. And, you know, and he said, oh, no, it's too icy in there. I'm going to go ski out in Vail. So Ron Nesson, who is the press secretary at the time, relayed this, thinking, like, no big thing, no big thing. Well, (laughs) there is now box number 300 at the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Library is filled with letters and and outrage. And the box is labeled New Hampshire Skiing Fuhrer. This erupted into an enormous kerfuffle in New Hampshire that the president of the United States and more to the point, his press secretary, was denigrating the big winter business of of New Hampshire. So people sent in this box, people sent a poster that said, it's a wonderful year to ski in New Hampshire. And Mount Sunapee Ski Resort invited Ron Nesson to come to a um, international ski event in which they promised to name a slope, an icy slope in, dedicated in his honor. Um, he had to wrote ba- write back to the owner of the ski resort, um, 
I was aware of the Mount Sunapee Area Ski Club Invitational Weekend during which the icy slope is being dedicated in my honor. Unfortunately, the president's schedule is going to prevent me from attending. But that didn't then stop the congressman from the 2nd District of New Hampshire, James C. Cleveland, to write Ron Nesson and encourage him, really, that he should go to the Mount Sunapee uh, Invitational Weekend on March 6th and 7th. This then became the uh, subject of several editorials. And then also in this box are several letters from people Eastern skiers supporting the president and saying, uh, <laughs> the next time they give you any flack about Eastern skiing, just ask them if they had a choice between New Hampshire and Colorado, which would they choose? Did Ford win New Hampshire? He did. He won New Hampshire by 1,300 votes, but not because, but mostly because, and this is an interesting, uh, well, I find it interesting anyway, he took a speech that Reagan had given in September in Chicago that nobody paid attention to at the time in which he called for a $90 billion reduction in the federal government. And Ford said, well, that's going to require the states to raise taxes to deal with this new burden that they're going to have to deal with because it's no longer being taken care of by the federal government. That policy proposal in the course of a campaign ended up dooming Reagan in the state because they had no sales or income tax. And so imagine today that a, that a policy somebody offered would actually hurt them in the campaign. Like, this doesn't, this doesn't happen that much in, in politics, but um, that's why he ended up winning in a squeaker in New Hampshire. All right, I'm going to do my, my real chatter now, which I do in honor of you, John. It was a story that we ran at Atlas Obscura about the first birthers. So in 1881, there were Chester Arthur birthers. The Democratic Party uh, seems to have set in motion a, a, an investigation to try to prove that Chester Arthur, who was the vice president of James Garfield and then inherited the presidency upon Garfield's assassination, that Arthur had been not born in Vermont, as he claimed, but actually born in Canada. <laughs> um, and they sent someone was there was a, a guy named Arthur Hinman was sent up there to, to send up to Vermont to look at look around at Arthur's birth. And there had been rumors that certainly one of the Arthur children had been born in Canada. There was even a claim that there was a brother who had been born in Vermont and that uh, Chester Arthur, who had been born in Canada, sort of adopted the identity of the brother and the, the records of the brother. Not it wasn't a huge controversy. I'm not claiming that that it 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 shook the nation, but it is funny to think that all the way back in 1881 there was the same same Ted Cruz Obama birtherism even then. And now a word from our next sponsor this week, which is Bonobos. Every guy wants to look his best, but few of us want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. As John Dickerson can attest right now, I'm wearing an extremely grubby sweatshirt and extremely grubby khaki pants. Clothes shopping, for me, is kind of a hassle. I'm not very good at it. But Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish men's clothes that fit. Worn out those old khakis to the point of no return? Yes, I have. In fact, I have done that. Do you need a new tie for that wedding you're going to? I actually need that, too. Bonobos is here to solve all your clothing needs for any occasion, from swim trunks to outerwear to suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you. Their service is fast, and they offer free and easy shipping and returns. And you can even try on clothes at one of their guide shops before you buy. You can look stylish, you can feel comfortable, and you can pick your perfect fit from slim to tall. And for a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when you go to bonobos.com gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com gabfest to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. Okay, that does it. Our intern is Elbisgard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, chief content officer for Panoply. GabFest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. 
Panoply's entire roster of podcasts is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. And our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to us in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.